0: Would you guys please be kind enough again? Let's stand together, Bible in hand. Let's pray over this text. We will be in Hebrews chapter 6. Now listen, guys, before I go any further. People read this book and they go away. They're scratching their heads and they can't make rhyme and reason out of it. And if you were just to pick up the book and look at chapter 6 or some of these other difficult passages, you might walk away. Well, wait a minute. I, I thought once we're saved, we're secure and you walk away a little baffled. And there's two things that can happen. Either fear grips your heart and you think you lost your salvation. Or, or, you, or, or you, just, you, you just never go back to the book. And yet this book is so powerful. And it's so... If you understand exactly what it's about and why it was written, it all makes sense. Really, it, does, it isn't rocket science. You, you've got these bunch of believers. Now remember, this is... Before 70 AD. This is before, you know, uh, um, Titus came in and besieged Jerusalem. There was still a functioning tabernacle going on there. Man, they were sacrificing animals. And just imagine that. You know, uh, the Yom Kippur was happening. There was offerings of dedication and burnt offerings and wave offerings. And the priests were active and all. And this is what the Christians in Jerusalem were facing. Now, that would be equivalent to you being raised in a certain denomination. Then all of a sudden, somebody shares the gospel with you. You're enlightened. You begin to embrace the truth. You accept the truth. And you begin to taste that of the Holy Spirit. And then you become alive. And then someone comes along a little later on and says, Yeah, but all the other stuff is wrong. What do you mean? You know, and I've heard that so many times over you know, the course of my ministry where people are just blown away because they were raised in a certain denomination and then they go sit in an evangelical, you know, fire and hell brimstone. And all of a sudden they they think, my goodness, was this all? Was it all for nothing? All my entire life. Well, that's what that is, what the author and some believe it's a Pauline letter. Others say no. And there's all this. Argument over the language in the Greek about it, and I don't know if it's all that important. Who wrote the thing? If, the, if, if it was that important, it would say Paul, an apostle by the an apostle, not by the will of man or the man. And he would have said this is a but it just doesn't say it. So I wouldn't get all hung up about that. And where we've come so far is this author is saying, "Look, you know, I get it." You guys are all hung up with baptism because they were used of ceremonial washing. They were hung up on the idea of laying on hands of, on things or on people. Well, because they used to lay their hands on animals. And they thought in symbolic they were transferring their sins onto the animal. Well, here comes the apostles and they're teaching something different about baptism, about regeneration, about um, all these different kind of doctrines. Now, maybe at first... They were embracing it. But then apparently these Christians in Jerusalem began to question this whole thing. And these are difficult scripture verses, you know. But if you think about it, and and I'll just lay this out as a teaser. That they're, you know, if they've been enlightened and they tasted uh, the word of God, they taste the Holy Spirit. You know, they had this experience with the power of the Holy Ghost. And yet if they turn turn away... Literally, the language... There's no hope for them. Well, there's no repentance for them. But the question is, if they did want to repent, where were they turned to? Metanoia. They would have to turn around. Where would they have gone? In their minds and hearts, they wanted to go back to the sacrificial system, the old law, the old order. Now, of course, there's no, there's no salvation in that. Well, you and I cannot think that we're going to be saved by following the traditions of man or any legalistic code. And the denomination I came out of years ago, there were 16, 16 things that you would have to sign off on in order to become a member of their church. Well, that's legalism 101. You can't join a church. How many of you guys know that? Can you join a church? Yay or nay? How do you get into the church? You're born into the church. And so they're struggling. They're struggling over angels. They're struggling over Moses. Now they're struggling over Joshua. They can't believe what they're reading. They're they're struggling over Aaron and the priesthood. And this is where the author is taking us now to this guy named Melchizedek, where he's going to say, you know, this this whole thing with the Levitical priesthood is out, and this new order is in. Now right away, everybody's going to ask me after the service, this Melchizedek guy Genesis 14 you know was that Jesus when when David wrote about him in Psalms 110 this Mel, in the order of Melchizedek was that sort of like a christophany of an appearance of Christ before he was born you want the answer i don't know okay, and i'm not trying to be flippant does it matter Is that what the author is trying to bring across? You see, we can get so wrapped up in trying to find out some of the little details of the scriptures that we lose the entire big picture of things. What is this author trying to get across to these dear believers in Jerusalem? That there is a new order. And if you gravitate back to the old, you've got a question. Now listen, chapter 6. We'll read it in a minute. You've got a question Are they of the land that yields no fruit and therefore it is burned? Or are they experiencing rain that comes upon the earth and they're experiencing fruit? Anyway, let's just jump right into chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on unto um, perfection, not laying aside, I'm sorry, not laying again the foundation of repentance from um, from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrines of baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this author is saying, really, do we got to go any further into these subjects? Now, apparently, we really don't have the complete history of what's happening in the church in Jerusalem. All we know is that once upon a time, they were taught. Again, struggling, though, about going back into a form of legalism, thinking that is what's going to atone For their sins. And he's going to talk about just being off just a little bit, how far off track you can get if you stay on that course. He says, This will we do if God permits. In other words, we're going to move on. Now, let me have your attention for a minute, believer. Listen, God expects you to move on. He understands when we first become a believer in Christ that we will desire the milk of the word. We're infants. He doesn't expect to have all our eschatology down. He he expects us to kind of fumble through the scriptures and ask questions like, what meaneth this? That's what's under my diploma from my Bible school. What meaneth this? It's a joke. No, it's not a joke. (laughs) I don't know why I went four years through that, man. It was like torturous. But, but the Bible tells us that we are to grow. Now, are do we to grow in sinlessness? No, no, that's not what he's talking about. But what he's talking about, that we are to mature. We are to grow up in maturity. And one of the signs of maturity, too, by the way, is you're just not rattled over Everything. There's a maturity. There's a Christ likeness. You've gone from blessed are the poor and blessed are they that mourn and blessed are they that hunger and thirst and blessed are the meek and the peacemaker. No, you're a reflection of the kingdom of God and you are salt and you're light and you're growing daily. Let me tell you something, guys. And again, if you are spiritually speaking, the same age, spiritually speaking, as you were 10 years ago, there is something wrong. I hope, I hope, I hope in Jesus' name that you indeed have grown and that those, those young things and the rudiments of things, that they, you have gone and passed over those things, that you truly understand what water baptism is all about. That you truly understand that it is not really the, the act of laying on of hands, but it's that which will initiate or activate somebody's faith. It's nothing in these hands. And a baptism, it's just an outward expression of something that's already inward. But the young believer who's never matured, he's going to say, yeah, it's the third work of grace. You've got to be baptized and, you, and, you, and you've got to join a church and you've got all these different rules and regulations. See, that's... The immature believer, that's that's the one that's never grown, even though they might have been they might be in the church for like 20 years. Again, the understanding and the importance of just studying the word. And again, if you're only banking on coming here on Sunday and you're only banking on coming here on Wednesday, guess what's going to happen? Guys, I pray. I do. I pray for you. You pray for me. But you're in the word of God every day. And I get the one year that's a great practice. But if you're racing through it just so you can say you did your one year, you're missing so much. Take your time. Tap the brakes as it were. Let the Holy Spirit talk to you. Whether it's a one word, maybe a verse, maybe it's a whole chapter. But let the, the word of God become alive. It's active. It's powerful. It is sharper than a double-edged sword, is it not? Cuts in. It comes out. It takes skill to use this thing. It's that Roman short dagger, man. And he has to know how to use it. And that's the way it should be with you and I when it comes to the word of God. He says in verse 4, it... For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, they have tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Now, you would read that, you would think, well, truly, this is a believer, is it? Now, I've been doing this a long time, and I have met a number of people who have, they've been enlightened, they did taste, they were partaker, and then my question is, where are they today? Can I just give you one example? And I'm not a kind of a, snins, a sin sniffer or finger pointer, but how many of you guys remember Dion Mucci from the, you know, Dion and the Belmonts? How many old God people do we have? Man, when that guy got saved, I thought that heaven can come down. Dion got saved. And I listened to his testimony and I wept through the entire thing, talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and bringing him out of darkness. And if you know his testimony, he was steeped in a denomination. I want to be careful that I don't offend people, right? But steeped into that, where there was a bunch of rules and regulations. And if I could say this, that make a hint, crucifying Christ afresh daily. And then years went on and I was, I bought all three of his albums. I think he had a total of three. I looked at all the lyrics. I went, this guy radically got saved. Santos actually played, played with Dion. We were talking about it the last time we were together. And he goes, how did you hear his last interview? And I go, no, he goes, you can, you can get it on YouTube. I said, that's all he said. By the time I was done, you know, I'm I'm a weepy guy. But when I was weeping because he did taste, he was enlightened. I knew this because I heard his testimony, but now has embraced that which he came out. And if he would tell you, you need to repent, he would be telling you to repent back into that darkness where he is. That's what Paul, this is what the author is saying here. Hey, it's impossible for them to repent because they're going to tell you, let's go back and get involved with all the Judaism and all the traditions of man. And is that what God wants from us? Yeah, or nay. Of course he doesn't. He wants every day with Jesus to be sweeter than the day before. Remember that old song every day with Jesus sweeter than the day before. I love him more and more. That's the way the Christian life should be, people. I hope, and I hope to God, and I don't say that in a vain way, but I hope in our Lord Jesus Christ that you never allow Calvary Chapel to become that. You need to repent. Oh, what do I need to do? Come out to Calvary Chapel. Don't take them to Calvary. Take them to the cross. Take them to the death, burial, resurrection. No, this is a good place to hang out, man. It's Noah's Ark. It's a little stinky inside, but it's the best thing floating. You see the picture now with the book of Hebrews here? He goes on and he says in verse 5, Have tasted the good of the word of God, the powers of of the, the world to come. It literally means an understanding of the age to come. Listen, this was sobering to me when I found this out. You know, um, and I might have got this either from Billy Graham's book I'm reading now. Or it was Greg said it. But it, they said, both of them, they're evangelists. Very powerful evangelism uh, evangelists. But they said, with, uh, the, out of the altar calls that they do. And the hundreds that come forward. According to them, they said only 5% really experience the rebirth. Only 5% will continue to walk with the Lord. That's from Greg Laurie or Billy Graham, one of them. And I kind of believe that. Why? Because whether you're a heathen or whether you're a believer, the word of God is still powerful. And the way they present it is so emotional. You know, how many times have you, you heard the gospel before you surrendered and it had an impact on you? That's because the word is powerful. And that's what kind of what he's alluding to. They taste the good word of God, and the powers of the world. And if they shall fall away, now listen. That word "fall away." Circle it in your Bibles, because literally, what it means according to Wees is a deviation. They've deviated away. It would be like this. You know, one of these guys that you know, the Jewish uh, somebody in Judaism gets saved, radically saved, you know, and uh, or or here. Enlighten, whatever and then they begin again to long for the the past they begin to long for you know the temple worship and they want to hear the priest and their chant and they want to see the the court of the women the court of the gentiles and they want to kind of get a glimpse into the holy place and all that and they start to long for the old way again he said if that's the case if you just deviate just a little bit you let that go on a week, two weeks, maybe a year, two years, five years, ten years. You know how far off course you're going to be? Now, I shared this, I think, two weeks ago with you on a Wednesday night. One of the one of the gals that was very instrumental. Um, uh, me coming to the Lord back in, I believe, it was seventy three. Now, seventy two is when she started witnessing to me. And she was so on fire for the Lord. It was, she was a little Jesus freak saint. I mean, she was always had her Bible, and it was always about. And so, um, you know, she she graduated a year before me, and then she went off to this this Bible school that just totally destroyed her. My point is this, though, I knew she was walking with, I knew she was enlightened, I knew she tasted of the heavenly things. And then, you know that Facebook thing? I'm not on it anymore, and that's why everybody's saying, why did you de-friend me? The half the people that ask me, I'm not even your friend, how can I de-friend you? I'm not even your friend. But um, I remember she got a, 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 somehow we got connected through Facebook. And I began to share with her and I started to thank her for the light that she that she showed back in, you know, the 70s. And she says, oh, don't even bring that up, Harry. She says, if you really want to know my feelings about Christianity. And she used some some choice words. And she says, basically, I just hate every Christian and I hate Christianity. And she's into this Baja thing and she's hugging roses or something. But she is so angry and here's a gal who tasted, and she had an experience with the Word of God. Now I know somebody's going to say, "Well, was she saved? And she lost her salvation?" I don't know. No, you can't judge another man's servant. I don't know what's in that girl's heart. I don't know if she, it was just the Jesus People movement she got turned on, or she. Re- I know this. That when Christ touched me and changed me, there was no other way to go. There's nowhere else to go. It was just me and him. And it didn't matter if I lost all my friends, my family. It was me and Jesus. And I never walked away from him. And I don't know how. And I guess a lot of people want to try to explain it. I don't know how you can taste the things of heaven, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, then turn around with the same breath and say, But I hate Christ. You're saying, Harry, it just doesn't sound, it's possible. So where's the first place people want to take you when that happens? Well, you know, Calvinism. Calvinism. Yeah, well, Arminianism. Right away, they want to take you to theology. theo, the, God, ology, this study of it, honestly. You and I, we're going to begin to understand God. You and I are going to be able to understand eternity I don't think was it was a David who says, oh, why would you even be mindful of me? You scattered out the universe with the tips of your fingers. And now you're going to look down on me and save the likes of me. His ways are above ours, folks. I don't understand it. There's so much things. That, there are a lot of things I don't understand. This one thing I do know that Christ died for us. And rose for us. And that whosoever would believe. And that word belief doesn't mean a head trip. It literally means believe with a trust. He comes into your heart. And you are regenerated into new life. The question for these people. Were they born again? Or did they just taste? Because becoming born again is more than tasting. Make sense? Now you're all theologians. You got it down. And again. Everybody's welcome to an opinion. And there's all sorts of opinions out there. Look what he says. And I think what the author is doing in verse 7 and 8 is what he's saying to them, you know, in a more simple way. The earth which drinketh in the rain and that cometh often upon it. What's the result? It brings forth herbs, fruit, meat uh, for them by whom it is dressed. You know, the the, the farmer receives the blessing from God. And in other words, when the rain comes down and it hits the earth, you're going to have a result. It's not going to remain barren or fruitless. And see, what happened was maybe the rain came or maybe there wasn't any rain and they weren't bearing fruit. And they, well, that's what verse 8 indicates. That which beareth thorns and uh, briars is rejected and is nine unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Two experiences, right? The rain, call it the word of God. You know, it's a symbol there. And it comes down on the earth and you just see it, you know, and it starts to bear fruit. You that sow the word and it's bringing, bringing forth fruit, you're going to enjoy it, right? And then you do the same thing and you, you sow the rain or the word of God and it brings forth nothing. What is it good for? According to this, just to be burned. But and now listen, and I think... My case here is in verse 9. It seems like the author is trying to establish this fact to these Jewish readers that Jesus is better than angels and Jesus is better than Moses and Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better. And that list will keep going on until he gets into the priesthood and he's going to say, Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, is better than Aaron in the Levitical priesthood. That's where he's going with all this. Look what he says in verse 9. But... Beloved, he's addressing another group. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. And things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak for God is not unrighteous to forget your works. If you look at this carefully in verse nine, got we and we got of you in verse 10, your works and you have in verse 10 and you have in verse 10 and verse 11. You have back then it was all those who had tasted and those of there seems to be two different groups here. And literally, I think it was Thayer who said in his work on this, when it it says, but beloved, we are persuaded, literally means, listen. And I kind of agree to him or with him. He goes, this doesn't apply to you. So there is a group that this author is addressing and saying, yeah, I get this. There's people falling away back in Judaism. Ah, They heard it. They tasted it. There was some kind of an experience. But you know what? It's not bringing forth fruit. There's no evidence. But this doesn't apply to you. And that's where he takes off with his other thought. He says, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your works, labor of love, which you have showed uh, toward his name. Notice it says towards his name. Legalism will say love towards you shown to others. But when we do things one for another and in fact... Joe brought that out in communion. You know, he had a, he had people stand for that had prodigals and those that just um, uh, lost a loved one, and it was it was a sobering time for me because I was just sort of like looking around and I'm just and when he said those who lost a loved one, I, I didn't I didn't stand. I lost my brother this year, but I just. I don't, there, in, in, well, I just didn't. I don't know why. I just didn't. But anyway. But I love the fact that Joe got up there and said, now that we have shown love and prayed for each other, they'll know you're my disciples by what? The love that you have one for another. You know, legalism will never pr- produce that. It'll never produce that. If there is any kind of act of kindness, there's always something attached to it. You know, I love you because I have to. I, that, that, that's not grace. I love you because God has instilled a love into my heart. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? I'm sort of taking a bunny trail here. But just to say off the, you know, hey, I love you. You know, and uh, so will you come over and help me on my, you know, motorcycle or whatever? That's not love. It's not agape love. Real agape love is you're loving unconditionally. And when people see that, when they see it's unconditional, kids, listen. When they see that, there's something that draws them, not to you, that's legalism. It's, it draws them to the cross. It's like just putting hot coals on their head and it's burning them. There's, there's an action, a reaction. When you begin to love. And Joe was sharing that. And you know what's so cool? God is righteous. And he does remember that. He doesn't remember the love for selfish reasons, but he remembers the love of unselfish reason, if that's the, the way to put it. Love without a cause. A non-reciprocal. There's no strings attached. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. He says there, which you have showed towards his name, that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the, the full assurance of hope unto, unto the end. He's, he's telling them to keep on loving him. And listen, keep on loving, and this is the way you will know for certain of of this hope. You know, it's really not in our nature to be loving until we come to Christ. You think about that. Didn't your life change? My life did. I thought I loved other people, but when I really examined my life, if I did anything kind for anyone else, it's because maybe you did an act of kindness for me. Or maybe I wanted something from you. I really can't remember a time in my BC days where I wanted to love somebody just because, hey, I just want to be full of love here, man. I just that didn't happen until I became saved. And it really didn't happen until I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when I began to experience the gifts of the spirit, I started finding myself loving people that. I never thought I was able to love before. And how God took a broken guy, a man that was just full of fear and bitterness. I hated my father. I I never hated, I hated him with every inch of my fiber. I couldn't stand him. I couldn't stand living with him. And when I could get out, I used to sleep right in these woods so I wouldn't have to go home. I couldn't stand his guts. He was violent. We tried to murder him twice, my brother and I. And then when God saved my brother first, I remember hearing him praying for my dad. And I said, what are you crazy? Why would you pray for that? He's an animal. He's an animal. And he said, God's going to save him. God's going to save him, man. I love that man. And I have to be honest with you, I was saved. And I couldn't get those words out of my mouth. And it wasn't until I was filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit where God started to change my heart towards him. Make sense? You with me, church? God knows that. It's his love. He's not unrighteous. He is righteous. He will remember those things. Maybe part of that, well done, thou good and faithful servant, is a part of that. And notice what he says here. We, de- we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope unto the end that you may, listen, that you be not slothful. The Bible has a lot to say about slothfulness, man. Slothful. But followers of them who through faith and patience inherit uh, inherited the promise. In, in one translation it said that you won't be spiritually dull. And I'll tell you something, the man, the woman that's filled with the Holy Spirit and is loving unconditionally, he's everything but dull. I mean, that's somebody that's full of excitement when you can love the unlovable. For when God made promise, now this is where he begins to make his point about God being better than the order of Aaron or the Levitical order. He says here, in verse 13, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. <laughs> you know, you, you know God, God couldn't say, well, I swear to myself, you know, I swear to God, you know. And, and of course, we were dealing with that on Sunday, were we not? About just letting your yes be yes. You don't have to walk around making all these vows and these, these promises and swearing to God. I swear to God, I'm going to. Hey, would you pay me back? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Will you loan me ten bucks? I, I, I swear to God, I'll pay you back. God says, No. But God can't swear any higher than himself. But he is going to do something in this passage. Let me have your attention for just a second, your eyes. He is going to do something that's totally out of the norm here. He is going to make his promise and he's going to say, I swear and I can't swear any higher than myself because there's nothing higher. But then he's going to do something else that's immutable. And he's going to say, I'm not even going to swear by my word. And his word will never return void. And we'll see that as we read ahead. God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear no or by no greater. He swear by himself saying, surely uh, blessings I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had um, patiently endured, he obtained or obtained the promise. And there is a great message here, too, by the way. Um, Abraham, you know, um, childless Sarah, his wife's barren. You guys know the story. It's an old friend of ours. And uh, God comes to Abraham and he says, uh, and I think this is in Genesis um, somewhere around 22, I think. But I'll, I'll dig it up in a minute. Um, so he comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, your descendants are going to be more numerous than stars and more numerous than the grands of the sea. And it tells us that Abraham believed God, right? But he made a promise. Now, listen, when he made that promise, the fulfillment of that promise didn't, it wasn't fulfilled until I think, 25 years later. And, you know, this cracks me up sometimes about a believer. Oh, they've been praying for something. And God then, you know, by his Holy Spirit says, no, I'm going to do this for you. And you, you come to me. God promised me he's going to do this thing. I know he's going to do this thing. And then you wait a day. You wait two days. You wait three. Well, maybe I just didn't hear. You know, and then you go through a trial. Although maybe that was just a bad dream. You know, maybe it was too much pepperoni. And you begin to doubt, you know. Here's a guy, and through many oppositions, ups and downs, and, and even with his sh- shortcomings, ask Sarah, if, when you meet her in heaven, ask some of Abraham's shortcomings. There were many. And, uh, but he never wavered. He never wavered. He never wavered when he said, take your son, your only son, and go sacrifice this kid. And he takes him to the mount, And this guy pulls a knife out. It's going to cut him. And it's an angel of God. It holds him back. And he goes, Now that I know. And he reiterates the promise again to him You are going to be the father of many people, many nations. He never wavered, even in the face of the most difficult trial he ever faced. We had this guy, what was his name? The guy from Syria. What was his name? Pastor John? Brother John from Syria, right? And and telling this story about this couple that literally had to pray to God and say, we're willing to to put our children on the altar. And I think they they, they were taken out, they were martyred. But 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 my point, my point here is you might be you you might receive a promise from God. And it might be as real as a $100 bill to you. And you just know it's going to happen. But then the time goes on. And then the trials come. And God's chiseling away. You don't waver at the promise. Especially if it's a promise that comes right out of the word of God. You know what's crazy? I don't know why. I guess because of the prayer thing. And what time is it? Richard, you can make your way up again. Um, during the communion service, when he says, if you lost a, a loved one. I remember... Uh, um, a promise my brother shared with me and, and I think it was taken out of context But still, when you're young in the Lord Every Bible verse applies to you You know, you, you ever, right? So I, I remember I heard him praying for my dad And I thought, you know, brother yeah, you know, I like your faith, it ain't gonna happen You know, he is Satan Satan can't get saved And he goes, no, Harry, God just gave me a promise And I said, and what is that? And he began to tell me the story of Cornelius. you know and, and, and when and when they get in there, and Peter says to him, hey, If you will believe, you will be saved. And what's the rest of the verse? And your house. He goes, Here, that's part of our house. He's gonna get saved. And I go, Yo, bro, ain't gonna happen. And do you know my dad got saved? I'm gonna see him in heaven, along with my brothers. Both of my brothers have passed away, and I'm gonna see him with my mom. That's the hope. That we have. That's why we can continue and keep trusting. Because it is his will that none perish. But all come to the repentance. That's, there's the kind of promises I lay hold on. Give me an amen church. You look a little tired tonight. See that's what happens when you drink a couple. Expressos before you come up. And a slice of pizza. That helps. Let me finish this out. Before Richard um, leads us out. On a psalm. He says, surely blessings, I'm going to bless you, multiply, I'm going to multiply. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise for men verily swear by uh, the greater and the oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. And that's the guy who will say, I swear to God, I'll do it. Wearing God willing more abundantly to show unto the heir promise, that's you and I, the immutability of his counsel. He showed us through his word, his counsel, and that can't change. Not only that, he confirms it by an, uh, by an oath or a pledge. So God is swearing by himself. He's confirming it with the word of God, and those promises cannot be altered. And that is the hope that we have. And no reason, I mean, no, um, no wonder he tells us to be ready to be able to give the reason why we have that hope within us. You know, I got a lot of hope today, guys. You know that? I still have a, I still have a sister that I want to see kneeling at the cross one day. And I'm going to believe that that promise that he gave my brother, that your house is going to come. I believe that all my kids will be with me in heaven, walking in. I'm just going to believe it. What else am I going to believe? Right? I'm going to believe that God's going to give the desires of my heart because that's what his word says. Well, what happens if it's not as well? Let God deal with that. Believe in the promises of God. They're yay, yay, nay, nay. They don't alter. Amen, guys? Amen. We're going to pick it up next week because it really does tie in with chapter seven, where he talks about the uh, the the um, the immobility uh, in which was uh, impossible for God to lie that we might have a strong consolation, meaning a strong comfort. But he's getting into the area of Melchizedek, and I surely don't want to confuse you on your way home. And I told you I was going to tell you who Melchizedek was, but I'm not. Let's stand.